Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest of our Read All About It podcast extra episodes and I'm delighted this time to be joined by Stephen Keady, Manchester based writer. Of course you'll know the name because he was one of the guests on the podcast just a few weeks ago and when Stephen and I were chatting we decided we'd do one of these podcast extras and the subject matter, it's not Stephen quite Scotland versus England but we decided that, that I would choose five of my favourite Scottish books and you would choose five of your, your favourite English books. So we're not pitting them against each other, but uh, you know, since you were the first English person on the podcast, we thought it was a fitting subject. Yeah, it's a, it was. Uh, I was a bit worried that we were going to start some kind of, you know, book-based civil war. But, uh, <laughs> I think no, it's more about celebrating them, isn't it, as opposed to pitting them against each other. So absolutely. And and before we get started, so basically it's the same format as all the other extra episodes that you've chosen five of your books. I've chosen five of mine. But obviously, I just wanted to ask you first: How have you adjusted to your newfound fame after appearing on the Read All About It podcast? Oh, it's been it's been incredible. I keep. I it's not like I'm being stopped in the street because you can't go anywhere. So. Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, but put it this way, you've got my mother to sit down and listen to a podcast. So, you know, you've got one new fan if, if nothing else came out of it. So Obviously, uh, I'm guessing you would have got a lot of positive response from it. I, I know that I did as well, that, you know, people were really, really enjoyed the podcast. And I think just, again, like the best of the episodes, you know, the passion of all the guests for reading and for the books I've chosen really comes out in it. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I enjoyed listening to the podcast before, you know, before we even got speak, before we got chatting, because the conversations that you're having with people on the podcast are basically conversations I've wanted to have with all of my friends who don't read, you know, over the years, and none of them would listen. So um, it was, it's quite nice to find somebody that, goes, <laughs> that, that gets what you're on about. But uh, no, the, the, the feedback's been pretty good. There's um, quite a few people who've not heard of the podcast are now, you know, saying they're following it and, and listening to other episodes, which is good. But then a couple of people have, have got back to me about the books that I've recommended and um, asked to either borrow them. I know, I know that Nick Hornby sold another copy of Fever Pitch off the back of me raving about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's, it went pretty well. I, I, I really enjoyed doing it and it's glad to be back for the sequel. Excellent. So, as I say, what we'll do is we'll basically just get through, have a chat about each of, the, of our book choices. And I think, like, you know, quite a few of the books that you've chosen I've not read before and, and you know, similar to you. So it'll be quite interesting just to get our, our thoughts and, and questions on them. The first book is going to be one of your choices in the book that you've chosen first is Feet in the Clouds by Richard Asquith. Yeah, so it's um, it's a non-fiction book, but and it's about fell running. When you set this this idea for the podcast to do England and Scotland as opposed to verses... I went through the bookshelf and sort of through the reading history and thought, I haven't got that many English authors on the shelf. It seems to be all either American sports and um, American crime stuff or two bookshelves worth of Ian Rankin stuff. So I started having a little look through and this book jumped out. It made me realise, and this is the way I've sort of gone through all the choices, is it taught me a little bit about England and something about England that I didn't know at all. And it introduced me to a little community of people that I was unaware of. It's about fell running. Um, and it's about, so Asquith is a Guardian journalist who was a fell running obsessive on the, on the side. And the book tells the story of one, his year competing in fell races and training, you know, and running in those races. It tells the history of 
fell running and talks about some of the athletes that are involved in that world and then it's also his attempt at running the bob graham round which is it's just fell running sort of traditional test um of 42 lake district peaks in under 24 hours um originally done i think in 1932 by a guy called bob graham it's become a bit of a, a thing for people to attempt it's i think the record is down to somewhere like 13 hours now um, and some really fantastic runners have, have attempted it. This is the sort of big, the big thing throughout the book is him training for it and preparing for it and having a go at it. But it, it just talks about these these athletes that you've sort of never heard before. There's a guy called Joss Naylor who Asquith talks about as being one of the best athletes the country's ever produced. You know, and I, I thought I knew quite a lot about sort of sport and, and runners and stuff before reading it. And then it just, you realise you just never heard of any of them. So it's this little sort of wonderful insight into this world that I didn't know existed. And it all sort of takes place on the hills of the Lake District in these these towns that I've either driven through or, you know, been for the day out, but not realised that up in these mountains that surround them, there's, there's all these runners pounding the, pounding the trails and, and doing incredible things. So yeah, it's just a really great, really great book and a really um, sort of interesting insight into a different part of England that I wasn't aware of. So, so I mean, I take it effectively, fell running is, is hill running or is it? Is it yeah, more... so it's, it's up and down the mountains. Some of it is um, off trail and, you know, literally running down the side of down the side of the, the mountains and, and the hills. There's, there's some scrambling involved. I mean, I've never attempted it. I'm more, you know, more happy just to sit in the, in the, in the garden and read the book about it than, you know, I'd rather just run up and down my local canal. But it's about being out in the mountains and what nature can do for you know for the soul and and that kind of freedom to be up in the hills and stuff. And um, so I mean, there's some crazy crazy races that these guys do, and it, they just seem to have. It's just not like any race I would know. Like the local 10k that we have here doesn't start on the side of a hill and go right first one to the bottom as fast as you can. No path. Whereas the, these are some of the races that that these um, guys and and women are doing. But yeah, it's it's just a really fascinating sport, really. It, like I say, it, there's no, there seems to be no um, arrogance to it or anything like. That. It's just kind of still in its traditional form from all the years ago when kind of Bob Graham was doing his rounds and stuff, and it's it's still going on what appears to be under that, you know, still in that world now. And the the book highlights that it was written in 2004, but I think it it started off maybe just as a bit of an underground cult classic book really and then grew and grew and grew and I know a lot of runners who who have read it and and want to pass it on to other runners because it's just a really great running book it actually reminded me when I, when I, I kind of was doing a wee bit of research on it and there was a, there was two books two other books that came to mind and it was called Moonwalker Adventures of a Midnight Mountaineer and it was a guy called Alan Rowan who is based in Scotland he's a he was a sub-editor at a newspaper he was he would climb Monroe's, which are you know Scottish mountains, I think over three thousand right. feet. But he was finding obviously with the shift work that he was doing, he wasn't finishing till like ten, eleven at night. So it was sometimes it was impacting on his ability to to climb. So he started climbing. Basically, he would climb the these mountains during the night. So he would finish his shift about eleven, and he would drive maybe one or two or three hours to whatever Monroe he was going to climb, and then start climbing during the night. And and so he basically under the moonlight he'd be climbing these these Monroe's, oh, wow. and then some, and then sometimes getting to the towards the peak as either climbing through the clouds of darkness into the light above it or as the, as the sunrise was coming up and it's a it's an absolutely fascinating book and again it's something that obviously again when i read it i i, I had no desire to start climbing mountains at midnight but yeah <laughs> it sounds like the kind of same idea of just somebody who has that kind of passion and dedication but then gives you that perspective of a bit about the country 
the kind of landscape as well and, and a yeah. different perspective on how you're looking at it yeah it's i think these kind of books where they're just about a very specific subject and some very you know specific people that that are in this world that you would never come across in your sort of normal every day-to-day life like i am a runner i spend a lot of my spare time running but this is like a different part of that world that you would never you would never cross paths with he's done it in a really good way that the the passion comes across the expertise on the subject comes across but then also he, he shines a light on these characters that you know you've never heard of but are doing these incredible feats and it it just comes across as a, as a really um it becomes a really great story and then obviously you're following him attempting the bob graham round as well and and what he put himself through to to have a go at that and and try and complete that it's it just makes it's a really good story it's kind of a, like a almost a bit of an adventure story within that element as well the the book moonwalker i feel like i've heard of that did backpage press do that yes yeah mm. so i've heard i haven't read it i've read quite a lot of theirs particularly their football stuff but um, I think I'd noticed that on their website when I was looking back through all the stuff that they've done. So I've made a note of that to, to add to the ever-expanding list from your podcast. It's, it's certainly, honestly, it's one of those books where, you know, again, it's sometimes I think you can't quite remember how you, you come to end up picking up a book or reading it. And I think sometimes maybe I, I might have passed it in a, a bookshop, but, you know, somebody gave me it. And as soon as I started reading it, it's just the whole premise of it. And it's just absolutely captivating. And just this, as I say, this idea of the guy, sometimes just with a wee head torch or sometimes just instinctively without any light, just having to plot his way through these hills and mountains and in the darkness is just absolutely fascinating. The other, in terms of this book that you had chosen, the other thing it reminded me of is The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, which was a, a short story. It was turned into a film in the 60s. And again, just that idea of athletics because I think sport can be quite a difficult thing to, to talk about, to write about, sorry, but I think when it's a, an individual, you can get into the, the athletes. In this case, it's like a young guy who's in, in Boston at the time, but he has this prowess for, for running, gets into his head, and, and I think that's that can work really well in terms of putting sport onto the page. Yeah, I mean, he's turned to someone who's just attempted to write an Olympic rivalry novel, so I can totally <laughs> understand the, uh, the, the attempts to get sport on the page is not an easy one. I've never read that book. I've heard I've heard about it quite a lot. Like I think the film comes up quite a bit in you know. Yeah. It's a short. I think it's a short story. It's a Alan Silito, I think it is, who wrote. The, it's a collection of short stories, and out of that is that specific short story, which they then adapted right. into a, a film in the sixties. I've um, I know that the film comes up quite a bit. I think in sort of like the hundred greatest British films or those kind of lists. Um, yeah. But it's never the the story or the film I've, I've never uh, I've never read. So again, another one to write down <laughs> and go back to. Um, this is before you start getting through all these Scottish books you're going to read. After. I know, yeah, it's just crazy, <laughs> absolutely crazy. Maybe we should uh, we should meet at the border and swap them over when lockdown's over. I give you five, you can give me your five. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a plan. Well, the first of my five, and one because one of the things I wanted to do, and what I've wanted to do with any of these podcasts, is uh, not necessarily choose the same kind of books. I always want to be trying to choose different books just to give people different recommendations. But if I'm choosing five of my favourite Scottish books, I have to choose, and I've spoken about it before, uh, The Cone Gatherers by Robin Jenkins, uh, which for me, I think if I had to choose, which is a tough thing, my favourite novel, uh, this would be it. I just, I absolutely love this book. And actually, I'm forever, I've either got copies in the house or I've, I've never got copies because I'm forever giving it away. And I can tell you just now, I've actually got two copies in the house, so I'm going to send you one because... Oh, 
you you should read this. And again, I've, I've maybe told this story before, but basically, I was working in, in a newspaper in Glasgow at the time, and, and a guy who was a, joined the, the newspaper, he's now a, an SNP MP, a guy called Brendan O'Hara. And we were talking about books, and he recommended this. He said The Cone Gathers by Robin Jenkins. I'd never heard of it, and obviously never read it. And I read the book, and it, it totally blew me away. And it puzzled me how, having gone through the whole Scottish education system, that I had never been given this book to read. I had never read heard of Robin Jenkins. And I think Scottish education's changed now, but at the time in, in the 80s when I was going through it, we read, you know, some classic uh, works of English or UK literature, you know, Lord of the, Lord of the Flies, we get Catch-22, we get American literature, but we didn't really seem to get any anything from Scottish writers. And particularly when I read The, the Cone Gatherers, which I've read in so many different occasions. I just, I love it as a, just as a, as a basic story, there's, there's a kind of element of, of mice and men with it, of it's two brothers who, one's a conscientious objector, and he's almost like kind of the carer for his other brother, and so they're sent to this forest to pick pine cones that are going to be replanted for the war effort. And Robin Jenkins, as he often did with his novels, he was a conscientious objector during the Second World War, and so he, he wrote about his own experience. So they, they went to this forest, you know, the grounds of this big kind of stately home and it's the interaction with the, the family who run the estate but also the gamekeeper who seems to take an instant dislike to, to one of the brothers and it's this kind of good versus evil how that builds up within this if, if it kind of a symbolic garden of eden of this forest where they're picking these pines and there's a real drama within it the way he writes is absolutely absolutely brilliant and as i say i I absolutely love the book. I constantly give it away. I do wish we had been taught it at school, but I can't recommend it highly enough. Do you know if there was a reason why books like that weren't on the syllabus at the time? Was it is it because of the subject matter and that he was a conscientious objector, or is it just that, that it was just that, that whoever was running the system at the time just decided that Catch Twenty Two or whatever was more important? I mean, I think it was. I think it was more not even just a specific school. I think within the, the schools, I think the teachers had a bit of an autonomy to teach specific books and as I say in fifth year our, our English teacher gave all the guys catch 22 and I've never met him again after I left school but I'd still want to shake his hand and buy him a pint because it's one of the best, <laughs> the best things that ever happened but, but if, he, if look, he's listening he might get in touch <laughs> <me a> pint. <laughs> yeah his name's Peter McGee and he, he taught at Turnbull High School in Bishop Briggs in the 80s but um, I'm not sure if it was just a kind of general feeling of how people viewed uh, Scottish literature, which is probably you know a wider discussion, and one of my other books is a kind of pivotal book in terms of how Scottish literature maybe changed and how it was perceived in terms of the quality of it. You know, we maybe get even things like 1984 towards the the, the tail end of school, which again is are great books. I'm so glad that we read and we studied, but I think within that. I think it was still important, I think, as, as readers, as potential writers, to teach people books by writers who maybe came from your community or from your yeah. city or from your country. And I think that, that encourages, because I think it gives people confidence to then say, well, if they could do it and they could write about things that are relevant to, to my surroundings, then that gives you the confidence to go on and do it yourself. There's the other thing, and I don't mean this in relation to accent, but the other thing is about writing in your voice. So if you can hear in the characters your voice as a you know as a teenage scot or as a teenage mank or or whatever it allows you that to feel a bit more like you're understood like people are interested in your stories and and understand your your world a little bit more and i think that that's really important to have that voice represented when you're learning about literature and it's interesting as well even in terms of how again a couple of my book choices because then when you at a very basic level it's 
Scottish literature, but then when you delve down into, you know, the kind of background that I come from, which would be different and, and, and hasn't always been reflected within Scottish literature from where, where I would come from, maybe a kind of Irish Catholic background coming right. over to, Scot- you know, my forefathers. And that is just slowly starting to seep in, telling those stories into Scottish literature. But which, again, is, you know, that's just an evolution. Has there been a conscious change within Scotland to introduce more Scottish literature into schools or is it just naturally progressed that way? I think it's more, I think the way the English has been taught, it was very much just set texts and we we, taught, we were taught them and we studied them. But I think there's over the last few years, there's been certainly an element of pupils being given more choice in terms of, the, you know, one of the things I know when my kids were going through the school system, when they get got to the, the senior school, they were allowed to choose one part of the, the English syllabus was you chose your own reading book, your book to read. And then with in, in conjunction with the teacher, then you would be writing about it and you would be studying it yourself. So it gave, I think it brought some of that in. But I also think, I think the quality of Scottish literature by and large has kind of increased over the last 20, 30 years or so. So I think it's maybe given teachers a wider scope for the sort of things they can teach. Oh, OK. That's interesting. Well, we're on to the second of your book choices and that is a book and it's the it's the one book out of your your five that i have read and it is the damned united by david peace i couldn't do a list of five books by english writers uh, and not have this book in it it's my favorite book of all time um it's for those that don't know it it's the story in novel form of brian clough's time at leeds united um, as the manager, which was for 44 days before it all went pear-shaped, for want of a better phrase. I mean, I'm a massive football fan, but I didn't know anything about Clough at Leeds and the circumstances which he'd taken over. So the, the book, although it's a novel, taught me a lot of stuff about that sort of 70s Clough history. So the, the, the book runs in two timelines. So there's Clough at Leeds, day one, day two, day three, all the way through to day 44 when, when it all goes wrong. Um, and then there's, there's the other timeline is um, Clough's career up until that point. So from his injury when he was a striker at Sunderland all the way through to the day that he, he gets appointed the Leeds manager. Um, and it takes you through his time at Derby and, um, and at Brighton. It's just an incredible piece of writing. There's been some legal disputes over over the book because peace obviously is using real life living people and writing about them in a fictional way um, and I know that the book has been changed in certain elements little phrases that have been said by people where people have said I didn't say that and I want that removed but in terms of an actual piece of writing I just found it phenomenal I've read it three times and it never gets boring I remember buying it and going oh this is interesting a, a novel about about a football manager let's see where this goes and obviously knowing you know knowing Clough and knowing his reputation and, and stuff and then reading it and thinking is this a novel or is this a strange biography that's been written and I can remember the house that we lived in I can remember the room that I first started reading it in and I can remember reading the first 120 pages without a break and wanting to put it down to go and check if it actually was a novel or if it was a biography, uh, but not wanting to put it down to go and find that because the, the book was just so engrossing and so fascinating. To me, it's I mean, it's my favourite book. I think it's one of the best, for me, it's, I think it's one of the best books ever written in English ever, but I mean, not everyone will agree with me on that, but it it's just a phenomenal book. And you can't talk, to me, I can't talk about a list of five English books without mentioning it. So I mean, I, I would agree with you. Certainly in terms of uh, the quality of the writing. I, I've always said this thing where I, I, and again, I've spoke about it to various other people of, I think there's a real gap in terms of 
good football literature. I think there's lots of good football non-fiction books, but for some reason, and it's kind of mirrored in terms of you get very few good films about football. And I think part of the problem with that is when novelists, because you think of the passion, the, the, the emotions that football generates in this country, it's incredible. It becomes so, you know, a lot of times you, the milestones in your life, you know, things like marriage, birth of your children, you can remember it, but you, re, you remember it in relation to the scoreline of your your favourite yeah. team. And, yeah. and that's such a football thing. But for some reason, it's been hard to translate on the page. And I think some of the reason for that is that you can't recreate what happens on the pitch because that's live on the pitch the best novelist and i think david peace does it he knows it's about the characters it's about the personalities it's about what happens off the pitch everything that happens on the pitch surrounds it and i think that's what the damn united does so brilliantly because i love the fact because i kind of i'm a wee bit older than you so i kind of have you know I've, I've actually vague memories of being in holiday down in england and uh, when derby county had played real madrid in the european cup in the in the 70s at the, ba- the old baseball ground i remember seeing that in tv with my dad i remember clough at forest winning the european cup I, I i remember all that and and obviously i remember as well that those 44 days at Leeds just as, as headlines but what i loved was the way he told clough's story from as you say from as a player when he was a great striker that just had to to leave the game early through injury and all the way through and I loved that Don Revy being his nemesis and and he judged himself by by Revy who was like the most successful English manager in the 60s and I I just loved that kind of the real the way that Clough was obsessed with Revy. I couldn't really think of a modern day example I suppose it would be it would be like Mourinho slagging off Guardiola when they were at Real Madrid and um, and Barcelona, and then if Guardiola left, then Mourinho getting the job, having slagged everyone off <laughs> yeah. for years, and then the end of it. And there's real TV footage of this. Is so on the last day that Clough was in the job, he then went to Yorkshire Television to do an interview. For those that don't know, that the in, there's an interview out there of Clough on this TV show being interviewed, and Don Revy is also in the same same TV studio, and the two of them are going back and forward. And I don't, I can't remember. I know this is in the book, but I can't remember if this is in the actual interview because I know that the interview in the book doesn't follow exactly word for word what's in what's in the interview on, on the TV, but it's not far off. Is that Revy says to him, "Well, why did you take the job?" And he said, "Because I wanted to do it better than you." And it's just, you know, that that mindset of I, I can do this what you've done I will be better than and I will show you there's a better way it's pure cluff really which is just my way or the highway and if if you don't do it that way then it's not right and uh, there's a great line by cluff which is that we we spoke about it for 20 minutes and then we decided to do it my way which is about him and one of his players it's just that 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 whole world just took took me into a, a part of football one that I didn't know and then and then two in, in the way that peace writes it to not only to discover that story, but to discover that story in in a way that is so brilliantly written and so brilliantly told. So there's a there's a very early part of the book where he goes into Revy's office and the desk that Revy used is is still in there, and he takes it out to the car park and he burns it. According to Nigel Clough, Brian Clough's son, who was there on that day, he said it definitely didn't happen. I can tell you that because I would have remembered because I used to like bonfires and I, and it definitely didn't happen. But the thing that's brilliant about it is Peace has used it as a tool to show us about Clough. And you could absolutely imagine Brian Clough doing that and, and yeah. it being part of his character. And Peace has just, he's written a, a phenomenal book, which like you say, is not only a phenomenal book about the, these rivals and these, these two men, but also the best book about football ever written it, because he's been able to tell football 
from the perspective of the people that are in it as opposed to what goes on on the pitch and that that's a really difficult thing to do which is probably why it's not been done very much in the in in the past because it, it's such a hard thing to do because one of the other books i remember reading at the time was a book by a guy called duncan hamilton and it was almost like a kind of biography of, of clough called it... divided you don't kiss me yeah i've read that I, i've got that actually downstairs it's it's a really good read yeah, and I think what what interested me about that, so he was like a young journalist in Nottingham and over 20 years from, I think, being a teenager, just a kind of cub reporter and following Forrest and getting to know Clough. And actually, in reading his book, it shows you that David Peace's depiction of Clough is, is actually pretty accurate, yeah. even though he's he's given an affectional account of it. There's a part in that book which speaks to the, the sort of loveliness of Clough as well. And lots of people that you hear about Clough when they talk about Clough, they talk about what a, a great man he was and a, particularly a real people person, particularly if you're on his side. You think if you weren't on his side, then it was, you know, you, you don't exist. But I was listening to an interview with an ex-footballer recently. I can't remember who it was now, but he was he played for Clough at Forest and he was saying that, that sometimes if they pass a, a lorry that had broken down when they were on the coach uh, going to a game, Clough would pull the coach over and he would take the lorry driver for a tray full of sandwiches and, you know, make sure if there was anything they could do for for him. And he said, these stories are not, you know, they're never written about. It just, that was just the way he was. But Hamilton tells a story in that book that Hamilton had a stutter and Clough said to him, what, what would help you if I rang you every day would, and just spoke to you and allowed you to speak to me? Would that, would that help you and give you more confidence? And he said, although he didn't ring me every day, he did ring me most days. And that was sort of on Clough's mind to help this young lad. It's just he's just a fascinating guy, isn't he? And I think the, the damned United is obviously the, the darkest part of his career, really, with with what happened at Leeds. But in in many ways, it also shines a light on on the good that he did, particularly at Derby. You know, there's not many managers, particularly in the modern game, that would be able to take over a club that are bottom of what is now the Championship in England and and make them European Cup semi finalists and and win you know league titles even, with them. Listen, even more than Derby, what he did with Nottingham Forest. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, that as well. It's to go even further and not only win it once, but to defend it and, and stick true to his principles as well is really, really fascinating. I So when I was a kid, I you know, Clough was the green jumper and that, that was it really. And he was at the end of his career. So The Damned United as a book made me go and look at what he'd done even more and, and read some of those books like Provided You Don't Kiss Me and um, learn a bit more about him. And he's, he's a fascinating guy. He's not, he's not for everyone, but he is, he's a fascinating yeah. guy. Because one of my highlights, obviously, I, I work at Celtic. I've worked there for a few years. And, and one of the highlights for me was Martin O'Neill, obviously, was our manager and had played under Clough. John Robertson was his assistant. Just at the point where Martin was leaving in 2005, we'd just lost the league in the last day of the season. And although we had won the Scottish Cup, there was a kind of poignancy to it we'd, because Martin had said he was taking time out because his wife wasn't well at the time. And what he did was he came into the office at Celtic Park just to pick up a few things and then popped into our multimedia office and sat with us, maybe about half a dozen of us, for about an hour, had a cup of coffee. And he just, some of the stories, he was telling stories from the, his time at Celtic, but then also telling stories about his time under Clough. And I don't think any of us spoke for an hour. We just sat and listened. And I remember going home and saying to my wife, that's just like the best day ever. Because you're thinking, I know every football fan, every Celtic fan would have loved to have been there. And it was just... It was brilliant because obviously Clough had been such an influence on him and, and all those guys and it was it was brilliant just to get that insight. I remember um, the first football match I ever took my son to, um, we were down in, uh, we've got some friends who live in Newbury and we, we went to Oxford versus Burton a couple of seasons ago. Nigel Clough was the Burton manager and then um, there was a woman sat in front of us with three daughters and she was trying to explain to her daughters 
how good Nigel Clough's dad was as a manager. And their daughters must have been early teens, maybe, you know, sort of the youngest being about 10. And I just leaned over to him and said, they just won't get it. Because no. whatever you say will not do justice to how brilliant that man was. And we, she ended up turning around and just we were sort of sharing a few stories about things we knew about Brian Clough. And, you know, that when those girls are older, they should go and read The Damned United and, and they'll learn a little bit more, I think. So. Excellent. So that's a thumbs up for The Damned United yeah. by David Peace. The second of my five books, and it's a book called Lanark, A Life in Four Books by Alastair Gray. And this, I think it's a pivotal book in Scottish literature. It's it's one of the most incredible books I think has ever been written. Alastair Gray, who just sadly passed away not that long ago, he's, he was a genius as a, as a writer, as a painter, as a poet, as, as just all sorts of brilliant uh, artistic creations. But he wrote this book, I think it took him about 30 years to write it. And it's a kind of combination of, it's a very strange book, it's, as I say, it's a life in four books, and the way it's written is book three is first, and then book one, two, and then book four. So three and four, uh, sandwich book one and two, and book three and four are kind of like a, a fantasy, slightly surreal, dystopian world of Unthank, which is, a, I think, his version of a kind of futuristic sci-fi type Glasgow. And then books one and two are set in pre-war Glasgow, very much realist. I came to it. At the time, I'd signed up for a, a course at Glasgow University. Do you know that way you just go through periods in your life where you think, I need to kind of tax my brain a bit more, I need to try and exercise it? So I'd signed up for this, I think it was a 10-week course in, in studying 20th century Scottish literature. And the guy who was teaching it was brilliant. So basically, you got a book to read, and then the following week, we would talk about it in the class. And he said, if you don't finish the book, there'll be spoilers because we're talking about the whole book. So right. to read it, and Lanark was the only book we'd read, we read and studied over two weeks because it is so big and complicated. But it really helped me the first time I read it to then be able to go in and talk to other people and, and to have questions and to ask this the guy who was, who was taking the class. And so it gave me a real appreciation of it. And I've, I've read it uh, subsequently. Again, I think it's, it's not just a great Scottish novel. I think it, it is a work of substance in terms of literature of world literature and sometimes i think i know chris dolan says it quite a lot about robert louis stevenson that you know he's maybe sometimes overlooked in the canon of of great writers because of maybe where he came from and i think alistair great to an extent is the same with this book i think lanark is that good it's it's an extraordinary work and he's he was an extraordinary man and actually the very first time celtic reached the champions league group stages which was back in 2001 for the club magazine we commissioned alistair gray to design a special cover to celebrate us getting to the Champions League and it remains the, the biggest selling issue of the magazine and it was like one of my proudest achievements because I got to go out for dinner with him and his wife and, and they say he was a complete eccentric, quite a strange character but uh, an absolute genius and Lanark is just a, an incredible, extraordinary book. And had you read the book at that time? You'd already read it yeah, previous. Yeah. Did you pick his brains about it or did you sit on your hands and sit quietly? And... It's hard to describe, you'd have to maybe look google some interviews with him to because he was one of those guys he's uh, i mean very very clever guy but he, he was quite eccentric and even just the way he spoke sometimes his voice would be kind of undulating so it'd be kind of go quite deep and then quite high and singing and so if you were out and people didn't know him they'd be thinking who on earth is that <laughs> he was just to be honest i was just like you know there's very few times and again, maybe just the job I've been, I'd be lucky sometimes to be in the presence of what I would consider greatness. Sometimes my heroes yeah. when I was growing up. And I kinda I, I kinda felt that with Alistair Gray. I was just I was just glad to be there in the same restaurant in the same room as him, you know. 
so the, obviously you say it goes three, one, two, four. Are they all linked? You know, is it is it about one life or is it about retellings of the same character's life in different worlds? It's, or? No, it's kind of like, so you could actually, if you picked the book up, you could read chapters three and four just as a kind of straight, slightly science fiction. There's a kind of dystopian, surreal world that he's created that is kind of, I don't know, if symbolic of, of what he saw as Glasgow and... But you can, they can stand alone, and then you can read books one and two, which are basically very much this kind of grim, pre-war Glasgow and, and the, the kind of poverty of, of that city. And you can read that separately, So, or you can read them as three, one, two, four. It was kind of toying with the whole kind of structure of the novel at the same time. Have you, have you read them in different orders and got different feelings towards the book, or...? I've only read it twice, but the both times I've read it, I read it basically read it in the order it was in. It was three, one, right. two, four, and and I actually quite liked that. And it's it's quite strange because obviously you're reading book one and two together anyway, so you're reading that whole narrative as a kind of realist narrative, and then jumping back into the more kind of serial element. But I think it works for me, and it's uh, it's just a really it's a really strange and unusual book, and I think it can be quite I think sometimes for people it can be quite intimidating because it is so unusual and. I think there's a prologue and an introduction even before the, the novel starts. There's an epilogue before the end. I think he, even at times, I think Alistair Gray kind of dips into it. He's, he does all the illustrations as well himself oh, okay. within the book. And it's just quite an unusual novel in that respect. It came out around about 1980, 81, and it, it was a kind of pivotal moment of... It was something that had never really been seen in Scottish literature before. And I think subsequently what came after it, through a whole variety of people like Urban Welsh and various other people, even if it's their work didn't mirror it, it gave them the confidence that this was somebody writing uniquely Scottish and, and it was such a, a strange, unusual book. And it gave, it really gave, galvanised, I think, Scottish literature. And that's why I, one of the reasons why I think it's so pivotal. We're on to your uh, next choice. And that's a novel called Brick Lane by Monica Alley. I read this book about, I think I read it about 15 years ago, if not if not more than that. I think it came out in 2003. And it's the story of a, a Bangladeshi girl uh, and her sister. Well, the, the book starts off with her and her sister in, in Bangladesh, children playing in sort of the freedom of, of childhood. But the, the main story is that the main character is brought to England to be part of an arranged marriage with a, a man who's about 20 years her senior. And the book is based around her in this flat in, I think it's Tower Hamlets in, in London. Sort of the drama of the story is she starts an affair with a young radical. She has children with this man and, and starts an affair with this young radical. And it's about her life in London as part of this arranged marriage and as this immigrant in a, in a country that she didn't ask to be brought to and, and how that sort of plays out. And then the other part of the book is her sister's life is shown to us either through letters back to her sister um, in London or there's one point where the book actually goes into her sister's perspective. So when she married into an arranged marriage, her sister actually ran off and married for love. And then you see the two sort of stories unfold. The reason that I've chosen it is that, again, as I, went, as I said before about Feet in the Clouds, it was just, I'm pretty convinced I read this book when I was travelling and I read, I very specifically remember this, I read 22 books in 12 weeks when we interrailed around Europe and there was no Kindle at the time. I carried most of them. So there was a lot of my wife and I reading the same book because otherwise we'd just be carrying you know, far too many books at that time. Um, and we didn't, we don't do that very often now. I know I mentioned on the last podcast that we just read one of Nick Hornby's, which is a, is a rarity to read the same thing. She read it first and then I read it. And I remember just thinking at the time, 
I know nothing about this world. I know nothing about the story of people coming over to England and, and how they live and how what it must be like for a woman who's been brought into an arranged marriage and then sort of put into a strange country, with, a, with not only with a, in a country she doesn't know, in a language she doesn't speak, but also with a man that she doesn't know. And it was just, it was a really fascinating insight into a world that I didn't know anything about, but it's very much, you know, a world part of England. And um, yeah, it's a re- I, really, I really enjoyed it. But I think partly because it's not the sort of book that I would normally read, but I got loads out of it because of that. And I, I think it's definitely one to sort of mention on this list because it taught me a little bit and it gave me an insight into a little bit about a world that I wasn't aware of, which is very much as part of my country as, you know, the running book about the Lake District. So. It's quite interesting because it's not a book I've read. Obviously, I've, he- I've heard it and I think it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize when it came out, but apparently... That caused a bit of controversy in in the Bangladeshi community because they weren't. I don't think that there was an unhappiness in terms of how it was portrayed. There was a lot of criticism about it. I I wasn't aware of that, but I can imagine. I mean, given the subject matter about the affair within the book and stuff like that, I can imagine that it that it would have done. But I I wasn't. I didn't go looking into it any further. I've not watched. I think there was a film adaptation as well in in the late sort of maybe 2007 or 2008 I haven't watched that either it, but it was just a very much when I read it I remember thinking God, what must it be like to be put in that world and to to be brought over from from somewhere where you were very happy and and then end up in a world where it's so far removed from from where you originally grew up and it's not your choice um, and I think that was quite an important book to read actually because it it opened my eyes to a, a slightly different world but no I might look up some of the criticism actually just to see either maybe what I didn't think about or what I might have missed within it. It was interesting that you you mentioned Brick Lane and why you chose it in terms of you know it cast light on part of of your country that you're maybe not aware of in terms of culturally and I'd mentioned earlier on about you know even within Scottish literature for example when I was coming to to choose these books and my initial five choices and I've changed them quite a bit because I was keen to to try and get some books that reflected like my cultural background in terms of coming from that kind of Irish Catholic background as part of Scotland and probably the most of the kind of classic Scottish literature doesn't come comes from a more kind of Presbyterian Protestant culture and I actually had texted Chris Dolan and said to him do you know any good Catholic Scottish novels and <laughs> said I'm sure there are some out there it, it took me a while and the first one which is my next book choice is Our Fathers by Andrew O'Hagan I think it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize back in 1999. It's very much a book that's really entrenched in the West of Scotland. It's it's brilliant about West of Scotland masculinity, which is you know lots of suppressed emotions that are never very good. You know, like we don't we don't express ourselves through words and actions in terms of positive emotions and that's all suppressed because you know it's a sign of weakness and you know you have this kind of stoic attitude and which and I think it's a, such a negative thing but within that there's also the, the working class politics of that kind of I think it's set, it's kind of Ayrshire so it's kind of West Coast but also within a, a kind of traditional Catholic community but it's a brilliantly written book it's again it's one of those books where you know sometimes you just read a book and it's the quality of the writing that, that really just kind of takes your your breath I mean you know you've just read a really good book and so it has all these different themes about politics, religion, old style communities and what kind of tie them together, how that's crumbling. But also it's it's really it's a novel about men and about how, how they react and interact with each other. I think the main character, he comes back to Ayrshire to visit his dying grandfather 
it's then, you know, the, the kind of interaction between the different generations of the family. But one of the things I, I wanted to choose it because it is, there is that kind of thread of kind of working class West Coast Catholicism running through it, which isn't always visible and wasn't always visible in traditional Scottish literature, even the likes of Robin Jenkins books, that's not really visible there. So I was I was quite keen to, to include that. So is is the premise of it that it the coming back to speak to the dying grandfather does it then go back and tell you the, the st- sort of story through the ages or is it about when he returns home the time that he spends at, at home? It's kind of the the relationship he has with his grandfather who's on the way out but had in his in his day had been this great campaigner in terms of kind of social reform but now is a kind of diminished character but he had helped the the grandson almost get away from that you know to kind of see beyond the the boundaries of that community where okay. you know like. You know, people traditionally would have grown up, would have just followed their fathers and grandfathers into the same industries and, and yes. then lived and died in those communities. But then the grandfather had helped him see beyond that and move beyond that. And then oh, he's okay. coming back and, and it's bringing back all those kind of memories of that, that community. And what I loved about it, again, coming from, from the West Coast of Scotland and knowing very much about how, you know, as men, we are so poor in terms of expressing our emotions unless it's you know unless it can be quite a negative or quite a seems quite a harsh way but just that idea of a novel about men and about our you know relationship with even within a family or how awkward that can be between fathers and sons and grandfathers and grandsons you know when when really you've you've got that real connection of family but you can't even if you're desperate to express it you can't often the you know, the end of life is something that forces people to do that as well, doesn't it? It forces them to, to say the things they they always then say they should have said years and years before. Um, and I think particularly with men and maybe, you know, going back to sort of my father's generation and, and the generation before him. So in the same way in, in the book that you do hear about that, of you know, there's often those regrets about not, not being the way they maybe should have been or, or saying the things that they should have said. Hopefully as a the generations go on, we're, we're all getting a bit better on it. I, I was just going to say that, exactly. what encourages me is that I see my son's generation, so my son is 26 now, and I see the way he and his friends talk and, and are able to talk about things, and, and I like that, I like. I think it's encouraging. I think this book as well, in, in some respects it's almost prophetic, because obviously it sees the way, so kind of traditional working class communities, like the, those characters came from, the things that would tie them together were church and politics so yeah they would be the catholic church would be very central to to their community and absolute adherence to the labor party in terms of their politics right. and and that you know in terms of scottish society now that has completely changed obviously for a whole variety of reasons people's practice of, of the faith has dissipated but in, in, in scottish political terms the labor party is not even the second biggest party now in scotland which right. when i was growing up there was two things that you you know, as a as a West of Scotland Catholic in the eighties, there was two things you would never have done. One, never ever vote Tory. That was just that's right. just a non-starter. But the other thing is, we had this kind of suspicion of Scottish nationalism and Scottish independence because we felt like the outsider and the alien, and we weren't quite sure of a place within Scotland. That's completely changed to the point where obviously the Scottish National Party is our government and there's a kind of movement towards independence. The Labour Party is almost a sideshow and irrelevance now because they haven't. What was got- important then is they've not evolved and that book kind of shows that to an extent and you know that's maybe a good 10 years before the SNP for example started to take power Andrew Hagen was talking about how these these old certainties were all crumbling so it lays the future out very well then doesn't it that you 
It does actually. I mean, it was only obviously with retrospect at the time. Yeah. But you, I mean, I could see at the time when I was reading it, you can see certainly the way you know people's attitudes towards religion. You know, that was definitely at that time. But certainly in terms, of even at, you know as late as 1999, because that was just you know that was just at the time when the Scottish Parliament was just re-established and the Labour Party dominated. And there was always that joke about up here if you just stuck a red rosette in anything, that people would just vote for it. And <laughs> in the space of ten years, that completely changed to the point where. As I say, the Labour Party, not quite an irrelevance, but it's it's the third party in Scotland, which is extraordinary. So one, one of the books I was going to talk about, but didn't it didn't quite make the list, um, quite late on actually didn't make the list, was The Football Factory by John King. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it, very briefly, that book's about football hooliganism. It's a fictional book, but it's about football hooliganism and, and um, white working class culture in, in London. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it who who really likes the book and thinks that the, the first chapter is the, the best first chapter ever written on football hooliganism. And I was saying I'd like to reread that book because I feel like it's got lots of arguments about what came up in the Brexit debate about the sort of forgotten communities and about how people in power maybe have taken for granted the, the vote of traditionally white working class people and stuff like that. His words back to me were, it's very much the Brexit book, but it was written 20 years before the debate. And I think it's interesting, actually, when writers can see, not not necessarily that they would see the path to it, but they're picking up on the themes maybe before they're in you know, the national debate or the na- national consciousness that, that writers maybe can pick up on stories of, of a certain group of people and, or a certain community and understand those those problems and, and articulate those problems sometimes earlier through through fiction and, and through just the story of one or two characters can, can sometimes give an insight into what the wider community and then the wider debate might be going forward. And I think that's really interesting. So actually, I, I loved The Football Factory. Um, and I think it's a, you know, what I was saying there about Boy Fathers as a novel about men, I think Football Factory is as well. And I think sometimes if you get beyond the, the kind of the hype of it being about football hooliganism I think that's just it's very much about the cult, the male culture and and I, I just think it's a brilliant study of that yeah it's it is a great book and it if it wasn't for one of the other books we're going to talk about it would it probably would have made the list and obviously you, you can leave this in or, or cut it out depending on how you feel but um it really it's a really fascinating book actually and it when you spoke about um our fathers and, and what that touches on it made me think about the football factory and that and that writing about the world of men but it's yeah they, they just made me think of that book anyway i think it's quite fascinating when writers can pick up on those stories and those threads that uh, that lead somewhere else in the national debate so just one other book that just came to mind when just it was just something you said there about how the football factory was the brexit book way before the brexit happened and that lost communities i read a book last year called it's called hillbilly elegy it's a memoir called a memoir of a family and a culture in crisis by a guy called jd vance he uh he comes from kentucky it's basically the kind of about why those communities who have absolutely nothing turned to Trump, who were, right. kind of wrote it, and it came out just, I think it came out round about the same time as Trump was elected, and it was basically saying, it was showing why all these forgotten communities that were just completely ignored and taken for granted, and they were just, they were just waiting for somebody to come along and say the things that they wanted to hear, and even if it's just all lies and pretends, then yeah. they, that's why they would then go with someone like Trump where everybody else's sensibilities are saying this is insane and it's a really that's a really brilliantly written book from somebody who was within that community and then I think he's not sure if he's a lawyer and, and moved away but very much it's, it's a brilliant study of his family but of that life and that and basically if you want to understand why people vote Trump it's as good a book as you're going to get what will be interesting about that 
is whether those people, if they believe it's not gone as well as they were expecting, or if those communities have still been ignored sort of three, four years down the line, whether in November they will stick to that belief that they were right to make that change. And it has made a difference to their lives, not necessarily to the whole of America, but to those communities, or whether they feel like they were lied to and it hasn't and it hasn't changed their lives. And I think that's that's the big thing for the Democratic Party in America is whether they can convince those those people that they were lied to and they were wrong and or, or whether whether they um, whether those communities have changed enough that it will continue as it is. If you can send me that after we've recorded, I'll um, I'll, I'll check that out because I'm fascinated yeah. by the American uh, politics stuff. So that would be interesting. So that's the end of the first part of this Read All About It podcast extra episode, where Stephen Kiddy and I have been chatting about some of our favourite English and Scottish books respectively. Part two will be coming soon, where we discuss books by Anne Donovan, Pete Davis, Danny Rhodes and Teresa Breslin. I hope you can join us for that, and until then, keep reading.